0: Four, I have like review notes. Usually I'll do context with each thing. But when you're doing it like every half day, I don't know how much context I need to do. It should be pretty fresh in your memory. Um, But to Jonah chapter three, felt like it should have been the end of the book. And when it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. The writer's telling us there's more to this story. It's not just about Nineveh. And in chapter one, we kind of pointed out that it's about the story between Jonah and God and and a human being dealing and reconciling with God. And all around Jonah for three chapters, people have been getting saved or people have been obedient to God in the face of his disobedience. And in the first chapter, it was those awesome sailors, right? The rugged sailors just turning to Yahweh and praying. In chapter two, uh, uh, the fish obeys God and Jonah is, comes around a little bit and just tries to save himself from death. In chapter three, an entire city of Nineveh comes to obey God and serve God and Jonah is still missing it. So when we start chapter four with the word, but Jonah's got something to learn still and there's still something there. It's Jonah's heart that has to get wrestled with in the same way God wants to work in our heart. So it displeases Jonah exceedingly um, and he became angry. Why would anyone get angry when a whole city just got saved? And why would anyone be that furious? The guy isn't able to celebrate as people around him find the Lord. This is a tough place when somebody's heart is that hard that people can be enthusiastically embracing the kingdom all around them and people get all bitter and hard about it. And I remember seeing this for the first time when I was a young man and somebody had just gotten saved and they were super excited about it <laughs> and telling everybody they know about it. And then there would be like the veteran person saying, you need to just cool down a little bit because yeah, they're being like weirdly antisocial, but the joy is just all over the place. And I think graceful Christians just see that and go, oh, it reminds me of my, how I felt when I first found the Lord. Praise the Lord, this is just amazing. And when people get a bitter heart, they can't stand it when people around them are joyful. And you see this often happen with people that really haven't been living for the Lord for a long time, they get bitter. Uh, They turn into wormwood is the word for it in the the Bible and I can't remember the reference. Um, So he doesn't celebrate with God's people. It leads you to think that this anger of the Ninevites giving saved is something that might've been part of the history of Jonah. He grew up in a town that would have been raided Maybe he saw people close to him get killed or raped by the Assyrians, and this would be really difficult for him to see them coming to the Lord while the people of Israel and the king of Israel don't come to the Lord, that he's jealous a little bit of the national identity that's there. Um, And he may have, uh, perhaps, um, he's seeing this people and thinking, how could this evil of people ever be forgiven for what they've done? Because even after they're saved, there's still stuff that needs to get cleaned up. The human skin is still hanging from the wall. The pyramids of human skulls are still in the city streets. So there's signs of their sin and their violence all over the place. Jonah's there, and the word in verse 1 is exceedingly, it's clear and it's an emphatic, it's an exclamation point in the Hebrew when we see that word. Uh, It should really read that way, that he was Displeased loudly, or displeased uh, in a very public kind of way. Disgust, showing off. uh, You know, and and sometimes you can see there's some cultures where their disgust is more publicly displayed. So it implies that he's upset to that degree, Um, which is really sad because he's upset that his preaching actually worked. So his heart's not even in what he's saying. He's just saying it because God told him to. But there's an intensity to this we can empathize a little bit with that, but at the same token, if he's not doing God's work, something's broken here, right? So they're repenting, but then what's going to happen? And maybe, I thought maybe Jonah as a prophet saw an image of the future of what the Assyrians would do to the Israeli people. And maybe he just, God gave him a vision of what these, this people would eventually do to the Northern Kingdom. And the evils and the hurt and the harm that they would cause Israel in the future. So I don't know what, what what that looks like. I want to read one verse to help us empathize just one more time with Jonah a little bit. When Hezekiah is facing a massive army of Assyrians at the gates of Jerusalem and they've surrounded Jerusalem, the the uh, Sennacherib sends out the Assyrian king Sennacherib in 2 Kings 18 sends out who I call the mouth of Soron. He sends out his speaker who goes out in front of the city and just starts spewing curses at the Israelites from below the walls. And this is one of the things he says, because this is what the Assyrians think of the Israelites at this period in history. And they tell him, why don't you just go away? Or why don't you just talk to us privately? And the mouth of Sauron says, no, the king wants everybody in the city to hear what I have to say. Because when we put this city under siege, they're going to suffer and the people are going to suffer along with you. So they'll be hungry and thirsty and they will eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Did I forget to say that's also one of the things that the Assyrians would do to people? Um, So God wipes out this army in one night when they're at the gates of Jerusalem, threatening the people of God. God deals with them, sends one angel, wipes out 185 thousand Assyrians in a single night which leaves a lot of work for the Assyrians or for the, the Hebrews to do some cleanup work. that's a lot of bodies to deal with. Um, but that's God can deal with these folks and at this point in history he's actually causing these people to repent to maybe not get to that point in history. So Jonah maybe has seen all of that maybe he's seen the mouth of Sauron cursing the city, cursing the name of God. And maybe he wants to see these people destroyed to prevent that kind of pain and trial for Israel later. I don't know, but he's exceedingly angry. Verse two, so he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. You know, Jonah says this like it's a negative, like that that's a bad thing. So he prays these things. It's also an, an odd prayer, right? He's accusing God of being merciful. And, and don't forget, this is the Old Testament where we have this definition of God, right? It's the people that are harsh. It's a deep irony that as he's bemoaning God's mercy and salvation, he just was mercifully saved himself. So he celebrates and appreciates when God has mercy on him, but he's a little resentful when he has the exact same mercy on other people. May we never get that hard-hearted. May we always have a soft heart towards the other people around us. So a city can get saved, but a prophet's heart stays angry. Um, We can believe God's good, but we can still reject a good God. And that's just a, a really, again, this is a thick, piece of literature and it's as a part of the bible the word of god this is a warning to us as believers we're dealing with the believer when it comes to jonah that our hearts too can get that hard towards other people i know that you are gracious and we get to see the character of god as gracious as loving kind and as merciful three definitions of god here so we can note the story arc of all of jonah here the beginning, Jonah leaves Israel for Nineveh and he ends up in a fish. Chapter two, he leaves the fish for Nineveh and arrives on dry land. And in chapter three, he goes from the dry land to Nineveh and he arrives at a place of bitterness and a hard-heartedness. So he knows God is gracious. In this chapter, we see that he said that at the very beginning. It's a piece we didn't know at the very beginning. So Jonah didn't write that in chapter one. But this is part of the discussion he had with God is that he knew God is going to forgive these people and he didn't want to be there for that or be part of that. So the word loving kindness in the Hebrew means a great kindness or it's kindness, kindness. It's a big kindness. Um, when, God, when Jonah knows that much about God, how is he not able to share that? And how is he not able to say God loves you? We have, and you all know this, In America, we have an incredibly hard-hearted church towards people that are living lives of sin. And it's a dangerous thing for the church when we don't have loving kindness, mercy, and grace for those people that are living in defiance of God's law. Because it's not our job to judge them. But Jonah takes that role on himself and it makes him bitter and hard because he thinks he knows who's evil and who he can judge. He knows how God defines good and evil, and he knows that that's evil behavior, you know, slaughtering people and flaying them and all torturing them. That's evil behavior. But we have far less evil behavior in the United States of America, but we have far harder hearts towards people that sin. And it's not to forgive the sin or to call evil good or good evil. I'll actually read that verse later. I'm ahead of myself. But it is to love that human being and be joyful when they find mercy and grace and repent from their sin. The goal is to get them to separate from their sin and to walk away from it. The goal isn't to fix the sin or to attack or judge the sin. God's seen way worse behavior in other generations than ours. But he still sees confidently people who call on the name of God that get hard and bitter hearts, just like Jonah. And I say that to myself. Like I have to warn myself not to hate people because of their sin. I have to see past it just like I do. And I hope God does for me right? And it's not to forgive the sin and to say that the sin's okay. That's the error of the progressive side. Let's just welcome the sin into our faith communities. No, we don't do that either, like especially torturers and people who flay. That's, I don't want to go camping with those people, right? There's spaces for holiness and the pursuit of holiness, but the rest of the world is a space for gentleness, graciousness, mercifulness, and loving kindness. That's a really tough balance to find. Therefore, verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. So it's better for Jonah to die than to live with a loving God. How many people do you know that are ready to die versus accept the love of God? They say the only way to get to hell is over Christ's dead body, right? People have to want it. Almost to not take the rational choice. So, this is not an uncommon belief in verse 3. His failure in Israel, his compromise as a prophet, his disobedience as a man of God, and now his defiance of God's will happening in front of him. He should be in Nineveh celebrating with all the people that are down there celebrating. They were giving sacrifices to God, and some of those sacrifices taste very good, right? That becomes a, a, you know, hopefully some of them are peace offerings. It's amazing when people of God do this. And Jonah's not alone. Elijah says almost the same thing when he runs away from Jezebel uh, and and he's exhausted and he's tired. But with Elijah, he's given everything of himself to try to save the world around him and be a good prophet. And he's just like, I'm done, Lord, I'm spent, I'm gone. So he's at the point of wishing for death because he's exhausted himself in the battle. Jonah's wishing for the point of death because he doesn't wanna see God be merciful to evil people. Anything's better than that. I love the story in Costa Mesa, at at a a church when all the hippies started getting saved. They'd come to church, and the church had brand new carpet. Have I told this story before? Okay, I got at least one no, so you got to hear this story. So they would come in with their bare feet because they're hippies, and they would get the carpet dirty. So the elders of the church and you know a lot of the People are like, we cannot have this. You need to tell these people to sit outside. It's California. We got speakers. They don't have to come into the church and wreck our brand new carpet. How dare they? That week, Chuck Smith went into the church with a few of his buddies, and they ripped the brand new carpet out of the church and went down to the baseboards. And everybody came back to church next week, and they were upset the carpet was gone. And he goes, but they're not wrecking the carpet anymore. Because the priority is to let the sinner come in and repent and change their ways. We don't need to get them to wear shoes. Oh my goodness, that's not the purpose. So here's Jonah wishing he was dead. (laughs) There's far too many people, I think, that wait for this confirmation before they do what God tells them to do. What a good way to waste years of your life. When God's given you the word, He's told you what to do. Do it. God's showing his love. Jonah shows his distance from God. So he's a fancy prophet with a sick heart. He's got nice robes and bad breath. He's a whitewashed tomb with corruption on the inside. He's exactly the kind of thing Jesus faced with the Pharisees. And Jesus got kind of sick of those people. This is a sign that Jonah should have reconsidered how he reacted to this situation. But Jonah's willing to die on the ship. And he's willing to die here. His heart essentially hasn't changed. He's not willing to do God's will. He'll comply if he has to, but he's not willing to just do what he says. One of the responses Jesus has to the Pharisees when they get upset with him for healing somebody on the Sabbath is he says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. We've already seen that passage. He's actually kind of frustrated with these Pharisees because they'd rather see evil done than good done. Because he says, is it better to do good on the Sabbath or not? So he does good on the Sabbath and they get frustrated with him. I love that in these first few verses, his original reason for leaving, way back in chapter one, we get this new layer of insight on Jonah. His original reason for leaving was that he knew God would save these people. So how does this work? Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Notice that Jonah never answers this question. And I love how Jesus does it too. He just asks the question that really gets past all the malarkey. He just cuts to it. He's blunt. God doesn't even interact with the foolishness of Jonah. He goes straight to Jonah's heart, right? This is a good tip for parents and future parents. When you have problems with your kids, don't bicker about what the kid wants to bicker about. Go straight to their heart what's broken about your heart right now that you can't do this thing, right? Go straight to the heart. It's an outstanding example of how to do that. Thank you, God, appreciate your example. And God does this a ton. In Genesis 3, Genesis 4, 1 Samuel chapter 13, God asks the question, what have you done to people that are in sin? What have you done? It's a great first question. Jesus asks questions like this. I like the one in Matthew 16, where he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Getting right to the core of the issue. Who do you say Jesus is? What have you done? Let's deal with your sin. Or with Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Let's talk about right and wrong, Jonah. Is it right that you're angry that I've chosen to save? God says salvation is mine, right? So is judgment. So it's not our job to pick who gets saved and who doesn't. Uh, when we get angry, God's word asks, do you have a right to be angry? That's a a, a settling question when we're in a state of anger and we're ticked off about something, is that little gentle voice of the Holy Spirit saying, is it right for you to be angry? Because you've read the word, you're going to get that question now whenever you're ticked off. The sentence for verse four, we have a lot of words in the English. I like these sentences. In the Hebrew, it's only four words. Amar, Yehovah, Yatab, Hara. That's what it is in the Hebrew, four words. Amar is to speak, Jehovah is the Lord. So then the Lord said is the first two words. Is it right for you to be angry is only two words in the Hebrew, Yatab, Hara, Yatab means good, pleasing, well, good, or is it to do good? So Yatab is to do a good thing in the world. So in a book where the question is what Jonah does, we're still on an action-based sentence here. And then hurrah is the word for hot or burning over or fury. It's when the barbecue went grease fire yesterday. So that's hurrah, you know, hurrah, it's going on fire, so the Yatab Harah is a contrasting sentence. Is it doing right when you're burning over? And when you're furying about something, is that right? So when human beings get discontent about their situation, is that a right thing for us to do? But in this case, Jonah's ticked off, he's mad, and God says, is this doing good when you're furying? Because like, he didn't really do anything back in Nineveh other than tell them that they're all going to be overturned. So here's the alternate. Is God's good a bad thing? It's almost the same question that Jesus asked the Pharisees. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath? So God asks this idea of, is my good a bad thing? Or does my good make burn you up? Are you upset with how good I am? And God puts that question right to them. Um, I like the idea that sometimes we rage at God and he's a big God, we can rage at him when we're upset, but know that this is kind of the question he throws back at humanity. Is my goodness a problem for you? Or do you have issues with how good and gentle I am? Maybe we want people to be more devastated. Maybe we want the opposing viewpoint to be cursed and to feel the pain of God's wrath. And there's a part of humanity that wants that, but it's not the right part of humanity right? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil and that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Isaiah 520. Woe unto them. Don't let God's goodness in the world be something that gets you mad. Maybe we should celebrate when God celebrates. Maybe we should tolerate, after three days together, tolerate the people in our fellowship that bug us. Because God's done a good work in their life. And that's part of how we come together as the people of Christ, is we tolerate people that outside the body of Christ, people don't even understand how we handle those people. How do you possibly deal with Dwayne for three days, right? But that's part of how we show the love of Christ. They would say that you will know them by their love. When the people of God gather together and love one another and celebrate God's goodness together, that is our ministry and how we show other people what God looks like we are the body of Christ. And we show that love by how we love one another. So Jonah's appreciating the bittersweet of his heart over the sweet mercies of God. That same mercy that he was shown in chapter two. So he's, Nineveh responds then better than the city of Jerusalem. He works with Nineveh for three days and they repent. He works with Jerusalem his whole life and they don't repent. Jonah knows that God can handle these questions. That's another thing. If you're you're seeing Jonah as hero here, at least he's a hero that knows how to throw his anger at God, which is the right place to put your frustrations and anger because you and God can sort that out. Jonah doesn't appear to answer the question. It doesn't say anything about it. He gets hot under the collar and he takes off. Verse five, so Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city and there he made himself a shelter. Your Bible might say tabernacle. And he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He's still hoping God's going to fry the city. He wants a fireworks show. He's sitting back so that the Tannerite can be far enough away. So you're sitting there, what are you doing? Like, honestly, if an entire city, like all of White Bear Lake got saved, where in the Twin Cities would you be tomorrow other than White Bear Lake? Wouldn't you want to be there for that revival happening? Like, oh, I'm driving down. I know Dicker's down there. We can hang out and watch all this happening, right? If we're down on Washington Square, just baptizing a 5,000 people, where else in the world would you wanna be if that started happening? Well, per- according to Jonah, it's to go sit on the east side and make a tent for yourself and watch it from a distance. Isn't the, this what angry people do? They isolate themselves. They pull themselves out of the community. We, we used to always call this the church of the disgruntled right? The people that bounce from church to church, to church, to church, they go there for three, four weeks until something's said or done that gets them angry. And then they bounce to the next church and they bounce to the next church. Now, some of this is healthy because you might be trying to find a healthy church, right? But some of this is just that people just can't have grace for people. And they can't just plug into a group of people and joyfully participate with them. You know, so people are like, oh, I can't find a church. And it's like, do they say anything that's against the word of God? No. Are they following the law of God? Yeah. What's wrong with it? Like, get to know people, you know? But not Jonah. He pulls himself out, sits outside. He'd rather sit at home and watch, you know, God do his work on television, flip through the channels till he finds a Nineveh explosion movie, and he's going to be there. So here's the other thing. If he's the prophet, he, he should be discipling people in Nineveh. He should be training up a whole group of pastors to be teaching the law of God, he should be trying to convert them to Judaism by showing them the law and showing them God's goodness. And here's Leviticus and here's Numbers and I'll go send for Genesis. So we got those scrolls here for you. You know, maybe he could have gone to the Ninevite library and seen if they had a copy of of Moses's books there. Um, But no, he's he's not discipling anybody. He's not praying with anybody. He's not celebrating things. He's not healing people, right? He's a prophet of God. He could have been asking for miracles for him. He's not doing any of that stuff. He should be directing and overseeing how to destroy skull pyramids. Okay, let's get that pyramid out of here and burn it. And let's purify this city. So we're going to go through and get rid of all your little merman idols off of everything. Carve that one off, burn that, destroy that. He could be directing traffic in Nineveh and showing them the ways of God. He's not doing any of that. In fact, if he did do some of that, maybe some of this repentance would have stuck. And that could have been more actively saving Israel than what he, anything else he could have done. Um, if they're giving sacrifice, like we saw in the last chapter, he's missing out on the barbecue. And to me, that's a tragedy. Like you're missing out on all the fun. Even if you're antisocial, at least sit in the corner and celebrate the people that are having fun and pray for them to have more fun. Like So maybe Jonah's an introvert. Even if you're an introvert, at least be with the people of God. You don't have to be in conversation. You can just be celebrating the fact that they're having a good time. Verse one, he knows God's going to turn. So maybe he's pouting here. He's hoping, demanding. He's out of the city. He likely took a high elevated position, maybe up in, if he's on the east side, he might've kind of gone up into those mountains so he could look down at the city and fix his position over these people. But Five things that angry people do are all modeled in these few sentences. Separating himself from the people of God, fumes with his irrational silliness, which is really cute with little kids. It's not so cute from a grown adult, right? He sits to watch God's work from the outside so he can judge it. He becomes inactive. He sits in the shade and he waits for God to change him instead of him changing for God right? This is what angry people do. And it's a, it's a bad loop to get into because there's no way out of it. The solutions to these problems are to do the exact opposite of these five things. And so we find people that can be bitter and angry their whole life, decades of lifetime just gone in this bitter, angry cycle. And it just starts in the 20s, just complaining about things. And then in the 30s, it's complaining enough to where you verbalize it to your pastor and it just kind of grows until you're like one of those grumpy old men in Minnesota, right? And you're complaining about rutabegas in the grocery store and things like that. Your position in life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a prophet or not. These are things that can be done. Uh, here we see an example of even a prophet getting lost in this anger cycle. And the Lord, verse 6, prepared a plant and made it cover Jonah. Come on, this is so graceful and wonderful of God. Just this blessing on an angry person. He doesn't get it though. Uh, it came up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. This is where I get the sunburn stuff, by the way, in the last chapters. He had to just be in agony with his bleached skin in the sun. So think of the mercy that just this gentle, sweet, you know, does God, does Jonah know if God's talking to him? Come on, a miracle plant growing up behind you to shade your head? Yes, God's talking to you. You can see God in his actions as much as we can read what he says in his word. We can see those gentle graces. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. (laughs) But watch out, Jonah. I'm telling you, this is a setup. God's gonna like work a parable on you. So he's all grateful for the plant, but he doesn't know God well enough to know that God's getting him here and he's gonna get him with a a heart-wrenching point so he prepares the plant. It's the same language from, uh, f- chapter one, verse 17, where he prepares the fish. He sends the storm so that God prepared a plant is the exact same language or for it parallels when he prepared the fish for Jonah. So the plant is a miracle that parallels the fish miracle. And, 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 and in some ways the whole book is kind of symmetrical like that. So the gourd or the plant, depending on your version, is a, by the way, it's a Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew, it's a masculine term, but we don't know if it was a male or female plant. I'm just saying, uh, just so you know, um, it's there, but it's the first use of the word in the, Holy Bi- in, the, in the Bible, and in fact, it's the only use of the word in the Bible, is in the book of Jonah. So it's a truly unique word, which is why some of your Bibles have gourd, some of them have plant. We don't quite know what it is in the same way that we don't quite know what the fish was. God prepared it. It could be a unique plant. In fact, it grew in a day. So we don't know of any plants like that on earth. So just like the fish being able to swallow a human, this is a miracle plant. It's not miracle grow, it's miracle plant. I know you're more awake now. The word here is kikayoni uh, in the Hebrew and in the uh, Aramaic or the Assyrian, or the Canaanite, it's the exact same word. So it's a, I think it's interesting that he, it is likely the kikayone was a gardening plant, or some people believe a castor oil palm tree, right? I don't know if your study Bibles have that in there. It's kind of, or a Racinius plant, which is a plant that was developed by the Assyrians. So think of the irony of this situation. He's grateful for a plant that the Assyrians developed or at least that's one of the interpretations of this. Um, it is still, at the time of Jerome, they believe this Kikayone plant is still in the gardens of Assyria. Like they still are growing it and doing it. And it can be a plant that grows up, but it blooms or pops its, its palms in like a day. So God prepared it, just like the fish was born well before chapter two. God prepared the fish ahead of time. This plant might've been there prepared ahead of time. And all its palms just popped the day Jonah was there. So that would be the naturalistic explanation. That explanation is kind of nice because God's blessing Jonah with an Assyrian plant uh, that was known for those people. And I, I just like that image. Jonah was grateful for it. It's the first mention in the book of Jonah of any gratefulness from this guy. And it's when he's being his physical needs are being met. It's when his animal needs are being met, he's finally grateful thanks for that drink of water, God. You know, it's when God serves Jonah that he's grateful for God. Can we be grateful for God without him doing things for us? And isn't that true maturity when we can understand and be grateful for the blessings we get that have to do with like us being able to breathe today? And I think that, by the way, is old age. When every time you get up from a chair, you're like, oh, thanks that I made it up, God. And you just start to learn to kind of do that all the time. So Jonah being grateful for the very first time, he's grateful for this plant. Uh, it, it's nice that something makes Jonah happy. It's sad that he's kind of a childlike in what makes him happy. He's only happy when he gets what he wants. But he's going through life as a miserable human being. And he's not even grateful for God. He's grateful for the plant. Do you see the language there? And you don't know if Jonah like carefully worded that when he wrote the book or if God's just bringing that inspiration into how he wrote it. He's not even thankful for God. He's just thankful for the very immediate needs being met. I think misery seeks idols. We become thankful for the plant instead of thankful for God. We become thankful for the cabin and we become thankful for Billy as opposed to being thankful for God working through Billy and through the cabin. We become thankful for the lake, but we're not thankful for the God that made the lake. I hope we're not in that mistake boat. I wouldn't look out and say, thank you, God, right? And we, we put the appreciation where it belongs because God made it all. God's working through people. And, and looking down at Nineveh, God's doing a work right in front of him, but he's thankful for the plant that's behind him. You just think of that contrast of what's going on here. Verse seven, but as the morning dawn, as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. Okay, I lied. There's not four miracles, there's five because it's the same language. God prepared the fish. God prepared the plant. God prepared Nineveh. God prepares a worm. So the, and so damaged the plant that it withered. This is by the way, the way why they think it's that kind of a plant in the Middle East because that kind of plant is really susceptible to damage and it can die in a day. So it's the kind of plant that would fit this story. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not five miracles. He also prepares an east wind. So we get one miracle in chapter one, one miracle in chapter two, one really amazing miracle in chapter three. And then in in the first few, like just a few sentences, we get miracle, miracle, miracle. What does it take for God to get through to Jonah? Plant, worm, worm. vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head and so he grew faint You, you can imagine the pain he's in then he wished death for himself and said it's better for me to die than to live so he's suicidal he's at the end of putting up with anything we get that same idea that God keeps trying to talk to him and his stubborn heart just won't move we have family and friends like this don't you get how much God loves you And their heart just doesn't move. In fact, it gets more resilient and more angry. And in this case, Jonah's like, I'd rather die than accept this grace that you're giving. Chapter two, he's praising uh, that he arose from his soul fainting. We even talked about that. So this contrast with chapter two. And now in chapter four, he has new life, but he's wishing he would faint and that it would just all be over. Everything's flipped around with angry people feeling sorry for yourself, Jonah, it's not God's plan for you. And when we hear that a lot of times, our reaction as Christians is don't feel sorry for yourself. And that can be bad counseling, because sometimes we just want to speak truth. And these are things we want to get get rid of so that we, we share them and we move on. But God interviews again in this situation, The right idea or the right disposition in the kingdom of God is to not want anything but God's blessing and favor, right? I think this is the shadow of Buddhism, by the way. Buddhism, you try to erase your interior self so that you have no wants and desires. Therefore, you never get upset and angry because you never expected anything. So you can just kind of do that. The problem with that is when you don't put God into the mix, a good and holy God into the mix, you're going to keep looking inside yourself and you're going to keep finding like a really nasty human being down deep that does have wants and desires. So you're basically trying to lie to yourself until you believe the lie. And Buddhism just misses on that point. But it's a shadow of a truth of a true believer that when we become satisfied with what God gives, our wants align with God's gifts. And then the same effect of what is supposed to happen in Buddhism actually happens in Christianity. We become content with what we've been given peace with God's gifts. And that relationship kind of sits or or, or we want God's blessing and we want what God's given to the point of Jonah wants to die suicidally, but a a mature believer can want what God wants for their life, even to the point of martyrdom. You know, and we look at Paul and we look at the disciples, all but John is martyred, right? And they wanted so much for people to know the joy of Christ that they were willing to die for people for that to happen. Right? Stephen looks up to heaven and it is as though a, an angel's a light shines around him and he's joyfully taking a stoning. Right, That's the kind of peace that we should want that aligns so much because Stephen knew that the effect of his death would have on a guy carrying coats off to the side and that would, that would roll around in Paul's brain until God could get a hold of his heart. And there's a part of Stephen that knew that was going to happen. Is there someone in your life that if you had to get martyred to save their soul, you would be willing to make that exchange? So Jonah's doing the opposite of that. He wants to just die because he can't stand that these people are finding the Lord. But I think we're hopefully somewhere between those two extremes in our maturity and in our growth. right? Where We love to see people get saved. We love to make sacrifices to make that happen. What do you need to to have grace come into your life? How can we be the plant for other people? Do you need a place to stay? Do you need food? Do you need to borrow a car? What does it take for me to show love to you? Because what I have is all from God. It's all yours too. And that generosity, you can see the early disciples just sharing in common what they had, eating meals together. It just doesn't matter. We're not gonna keep track of who owes who what because God owns all of it and we give it all away. And it's this easy kind of thing. But there's a progression here of how that happens. And Jonah's showing us the bitter end of this other side of it, right? Where everything's selfish. The contrast is clear. Here's Job verse chapter one, verse 21. I think Job, I kept going back to the book of Job for this. Job and Jonah are very like polar opposite personalities. And they show us these differences and these contrasts. Here's Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, And naked, I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. doesn't matter if, Paul said the same kind of thing. I don't have wants. I can be in a jail cellar. I've I've, I've experienced fruitfulness. I've experienced hunger. I've experienced thirst. I've experienced a full stomach. I've experienced a feast. And I've been in all these different places. And at the end of the day, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all God. It's all good. He's prepared me for all of it. No matter what, the faith we have is to know that God's in control. What a beautiful thing. What a huge point that Jonah's missing here. When we see God move, we never get je- jealous of him using a brother or sister to bless people, right? I remember being on the worship team and somebody, you know, the pastor was kind of excited about that we had done some, you know, more rock and roll kind of worship. I'd call it bluegrass, but just more just lively kind of stuff. He was was all like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. And and I remember saying, I don't know why it came out of my mouth, but I said, but you know what? If somebody else comes along to the church and they're good at music, I don't know that it's my calling. So if you find somebody that shows up and they've got gifts and talents, you kick me right off that team any day, any time. And he looked at me like it was the weirdest thing to say. And I don't even know why I said it, but it was like, I don't Just so you know, if you get somebody where that is their calling, we should celebrate when God elevates people around us and we see them exercising their spiritual gifts. Instead of being jealous of one another, we praise and worship one another. Not, I'm sorry. We praise and worship God for working through the people around us. That's a little more theologically sound. This is where you all pray for me. Help Sean to not say anything heretical. We love it when God moves amongst the people because we were here to see it. And we just get this, penium, he puts it up in our face. He wants to show us his blessing through other people. So when we watch people mature and become satisfied with God's blessing and we see them exercising their gifts for the body, praise the Lord, that's just wonderful. People like Jonah that complain usually find things to complain about. They can get the blessing of the plant, but they're gonna complain about the worm. So they don't just say thankful for the plant. At least I had a plant for a day. It's kind of that glasses half full, glaf- glass hem- half empty thing. Jonah has a lot to be thankful for right now. Here's a whole city, biggest conversion and revival in the history of the world. And he's really the person that gets to watch that. We nev- None of us got that pleasure. He even gets shade for a day, which is really nice. And then the shade's gone. And then he complains about that. Um, those that worry tend to find things to worry about. If you're a worrying person, you'll always find something to worry about. And it doesn't matter how good life is because you're looking for something to worry about. And if you're an angry person, you'll find things to be wrong with that place you're going or that church you go to. You'll identify and find (laughs) the smallest things that annoy you. We bring that on ourselves and it's something we need to fight just like Jonah is trying to show us through his book. We have to fight this because it's the core of a bitter heart. Sailors get saved because of the storm of the world. The fish obeys because the fish is the fish. Nineveh obeys because they saw that God was willing to forgive them and they just accepted it. Jonah has to learn to obey despite himself. And is probably the truest form of repentance that we're looking at here is that the heart has to change. And for the heart to change, we need to identify what's broken about our own heart. If we can identify it, we can pray about it. If we can pray about it, God's power can work on our life. Really cool. So when we disobey God with in deed or in heart, in action or in thought, we tend to be very miserable people because we have to spend a large part of our mental energy explaining our sin away and justifying our behavior. And we become fairly mean and angry people. Joy starts first in humility. Listen to this, Isaiah 29, verse 19. The humble shall increase joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. When you have nothing and you think you deserve nothing, anything is joyful. This is, uh, this is such a beautiful truth about humanity. You're just grateful for everything. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of times when you find people that have lots of material wealth that are believers, they know that they could walk away from all of it tomorrow and they'd still be happy people. In fact, it's part of why I think God hasn't entrusted them with resources is that they are thankful people. They do respect that of of other people and they know they could sell the mansion and move into a a flat in a second. It's it's not the stuff that makes them happy and content. The stuff is simply to bless the kingdom. How can I bless people with my stuff? And they're looking for ways to do that and God adores that because he's got his stuff with people that are good stewards of his stuff and will use it for the kingdom. The humble shall increase joy in the Lord. What does that make Jonah? He's not a humble guy. He's put himself over Nineveh and looks down at them. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? God's first question is, is it right for you to be angry about my goodness? And now he gives him a parable. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Like, did you make the plant? Did you do this? But Jonah feels justified. Here he answers God. It's stunning that he answers God. He should know how big and powerful God is. In fact, verse one of this chapter, he knows exactly how big and powerful God is. But he's challenging God here. And he says, it is right for me to be angry, even to death, how true that is. He's gonna die in his anger if he doesn't deal with this. How sad this is that he's gonna go to his deathbed holding on to his will, right? And then he's gonna get to heaven in the judgment seat and he's gonna look in his hand and he will realize there's nothing there. And everything he held on to was a false belief. It was vanity. These, in verse nine, are the last recorded words of Jonah. When a guy gives his testimony and he leaves the end of the story with this sad ending, that's a powerful piece of literature. And if it is believed Jonah wrote this. He doesn't want us to think that, he, that his character figured it out. He leaves us on this thing, showing us that where his heart was at. There is actually a human being that will be angry at God until they die. And this is, I think, where Jonah gets all his power from. He humbly presents himself as a loser. And like I said, Paul does the same thing. Like, I don't think I'm that. I'm a sinner. Paul and Barnabas go into a town and they think that this is Zeus and Hermes. And they're calling them gods. And, and they're like, don't call us gods. We're just men. Peter does the same thing when he does a miracle. And they're like, whoa, Peter. And he's like, no, no, no. I did this in the name of Jesus. The humility of the Christian is the beginning of wisdom. And I think when Jonah writes this and shows himself as an absolute angry loser, there's a deep humility in presenting that for all your legacy. What if you get to the end of the life and you think, how do I want people to remember me? Most of us think good things. I'd like people to remember me as a, a generally easygoing, loving guy, a good husband, a nice father, a better grandparent, right? Like, I'd like to be remembered like that. But Jonah's like, no, at the end of the day, I, wasted almost, I want to be remembered as this guy. I want to be remembered at the guy that was so angry that it, it, it nearly destroyed my life. So I I don't know. The humility of Jonah is not in the text, but it's definitely in the book, if that makes sense, right? So the last words he said are, are these. Anger, I think, because we see scenes where Jesus gets angry, and I want to just deal with the angry topic, because in this situation, this is bad anger. The situation with Jesus was good anger. So how do we define between good anger, righteous anger, and, and bad anger? And I would say that the opposite of righteous is self-righteous. When somebody decides for themselves what right is, right? So when Jesus is angry, it's he's angry for righteousness because people are defying the law of God in front of his face and in front of the temple, not a place where you should do it, right? When we see pastors abuse people or fall from grace, we should be angry at them. It is okay to think, how dare you hold up the name of Christ and then defile it like you did? Bad, <laughs> right? And, and, I, and if, we, if they had anybody in their life to hold them accountable, they would have had a, a brother or a sister saying that a long time before they hurt the church. Bad you, stop that. And that's a good righteous anger, right? And we go to bed sleeping easy with that kind of anger because we did the right thing. But Jonah's got a self-righteous anger. He's angry and it is right for me to be angry even into death. He's telling God what's right. And that is a self-righteous anger. 99% of anger in the world is self-righteous anger. Righteous anger is very rare. So usually when we get angry, it's because we think we're right and we deserve something. That's a dangerous kind of anger. And we're not supposed to go to sleep on that anger, right? The Bible says, do not go to sleep on your anger. Deal with it. Or like Danny and her roommates, we're going to talk this out. And they, Alyssa blocks people in the room until they have a conversation, (laughs) right? Don't go to sleep on that anger. It will mess with your head. Psychologically, you will embrace it and you will harden towards it and it will become your personality and your disposition. So let go of yourself and let go of your right to that anger and release it and tell people what they've done that's against the law of God, or deal with it, and fix your own heart. So that thought that we deserve more can be a deceptive thing. My papers are sticking. God gives everything, and God takes away everything. It's all from God. Even Assyrian plants are from God. So I like the fact that Jonah's testifying how hard his heart is was because there's an honesty to this literature that you just don't see in any other ancient literature. Frankly, it's the inspired word of God. And God's showing us something here. Verse 10, but the Lord. So finally we get a but God stuff. There it is. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. God's saying, I did a miracle for you, Jonah. I did a wonder for you. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, the great city? So first Nineveh's a wicked city, then Nineveh's a large city, and now the, the intonation of great is that it's a magnificent group of people. What a horribly merciful thing to say about the Assyrians. But God sees that there's people there that need to be saved, in which are more than 120,000 persons who can't discern between their right hand or their left and much livestock, Uh, why the livestock's in there? I don't, like, that's the weirdest thing in the world. But apparently God cares for and works through fish in chapter two. And he apparently in chapter four cares for the large number of livestock that's in Nineveh. Like, don't these livestock deserve some mercy too? Um, I'll I'll get back to the livestock, but it's just, this is part of what I love about the Bible. I love God. I love that he throws in things like that, that make me laugh when I read the scriptures. So God's using the plant to get to Jonah and now God's got him in his own parable. (laughs) Like, look at what you just did, Jonah. And he's putting it right in front of Jonah's face to teach Jonah because he also loves Jonah, this hard-hearted man. He gives him a sign so that he could understand it. You got the stuff, you got plants, you got pets. And and Jonah, like, this stuff's irrelevant. But you, you would rather cheer the plant than cheer the humans? Don't you get that I love these humans even more than the bird? Why worry about these things when I even care for the birds and the flowers of the field? Look at how I dress them. Don't you think I care about humans more than that? So people matter. People are going to go to heaven or hell. And Jonah, you've got a job to do. Why Why would you not care about those people in your life that are lost more than you care about your IRA and your next job decision? Like there has to be a level of concern there that starts to balance with your self-concerns. And that's a really horribly convicting thing for me. Like I have to start weighing those things out. At what level do I give myself up for other people? Because that's the sort of thing God cheers on and God celebrates. You don't have to be like the Ninevites to witness to the Ninevites. Jesus, remember they, they critique Jesus because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus models this for us. We don't have to be sinners to hang out with sinners, right? On the other hand, I don't think we think we send our five-year-olds into that mix either. Like that's not their job as children. But as grown adults, we should be engaging with and connecting with these people. So I love how he just says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are more than 120,000? God's saying, look at how many people are there, Jonah, that I love, I made these people. Don't you have any care for them? You'd rather just be sad about your plant? God loves the Ninevites and we obey God. The idea of pity is to forgive or feel sorry for people. God expresses an emotion here that I think reflects part of the character of God. We've seen God's loving kindness. We've seen his mercy We've seen his, his willingness to forgive. But there's also the idea that God pities people that are self-choosing a path away from him. And his wrath for the sin is combined with, here in verse 11, his pity for the people. Do you see the difference, the separation God's trying to show him? the city is wicked and God hates that. And the wrath and anger of God is at that sin and those idols and those priests that are leading people down that path. And the king that's leading people towards violence. But his pity is the emotion we see in verse 11 for the 120,000 people. Now, before I said there could have been up to a million people in Nineveh, which makes this verse kind of odd, because the belief of humans that have studied the archaeology think this city could have held that many people. But the Bible and God's word actually says more than 120,000, which means a million could still be true. It also could mean that this is a migratory city, that in different seasons of the year between those three-walled cities, that middle area could be empty or full depending on what time of year it was. So... That could dramatically change the number of people in this region, especially as the Assyrians were fairly nomadic. And the mention of livestock in verse 11 would indicate that this is kind of like a cow town in Texas, right? That the cows are out or in. Um, But there's a major doctrine here that God works with failures and God can feel wrath towards sin at the identical time that he feels pity towards the human. And if we want to be like Jesus, we have to develop that disposition towards others pity for the person, wrath towards the sin. Or, and, I, and I think in good fun, like Elijah, like even make fun of the sin because it's stupid, right? So I think that's a, a healthy thing at some point too. So what could go wrong? And God's inviting Jonah to go back to the beginning of this story and think of each decision he made and each step of the story. I just love that because the Lord's saying, you had pity on the plant for which you've not labored nor you made it grow, which came up at night and perished in a night. And he's pointing out the contrast between the plant and the people and he's inviting them to rethink everything that he's done. I think that's exactly what happens after the fourth chapter. Jonah sits and reflects and retraces his steps and starts taking notes and the book of Jonah starts to form. And he starts to realize how his digression from prophet of the king to idiot under plant, how that cycle happens and how he got there. So he starts over, he looks at each step. The book of Jonah starts to form in Jonah's heart. And out of his heart comes a plant, which is gonna bless millions of people throughout history in the form of this book. It starts with his humility and he lets God finish the story that's really cool. He doesn't get the last word. And how many humans need to get the last word, right? But he doesn't. He just leaves the last word to God. So the story will stand for all of human history and eternity because Jonah listens in the end. And he doesn't record the final conversion because, and I like this, I think it's between him and God. It's really nobody's business right? That sweetness, that intimacy that he finds with God, he's going to put out and just tell the story of his bitterness and leave the rest of us to answer these questions God's asking Jonah. So it says in this last verse, who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? Part of God's pity for people that are living as sin is that they can't even think, right? I think it's funny, I'll talk to my dad and he'll be like frustrated with like extreme left liberal people, right? And we have in our family people that are kind of traditional liberals and we have dialogues with them. But there's something with kind of the extreme left that there's no conversation to be had, right? See, he'll rage against that sort of thing. And it's like, dad, don't you get it? Reason doesn't work with unreasonable people, right? Or as Winston Churchill used to say, you can't negotiate with a tiger when it's got you firmly in its jaws. There's no negotiation there. When the upper hand is had, you're not gonna dialogue with people about things, right? Get ready to be eaten. So part of God's pity is bec- not because they are so strong and mighty and powerful and inspire awe and fear in everyone around them. Fear me. It's not, that's not what God looks at. He looks at how simple-minded they are, how weak they really are, how underneath all that bravado and strength, there's nothing. It's like the schoolyard bully. When you finally stand up to him, there's just nothing underneath. It's like an air balloon that you pop with a pin. God sees the air on the inside and feels sorry for that person. He doesn't see the puffed-upness around them. And look at how Nineveh just popped right? One guy walks into town like a pin and speaks that God is looking at your deeds and he's going to overturn you as a city and poof, it all just goes away. Just like standing up to the bully. So God shows them the way to do it by working through their hearts. The idea of you don't know your right hand from the left is a Hebrew phrase for you can't make moral judgments. You just can't think clearly. You don't know what's right and what's wrong. So not knowing your right hand from the left is kind of like that. We see something like that in the New Testament where it says, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing when you give to the temple, right? But that's a person who can discern between their right and their left. And they know they make those moral judgments. When you're dealing with somebody that's not living and loving God, they can't discern or make moral judgments. Rational argument doesn't work because they can just change the rules with whatever they want. So, It ends then with a question. Doesn't God have the right to choose who he loves? Doesn't he have that right? Jonah, the writer then is, I think, smitten with this question. It is the question that changes his heart. And the saved person in chapter four is Jonah. And we don't see his repentance. We've seen it modeled by the king of Nineveh. We've seen it modeled by Jonah's prayer in chapter two, and we've seen the sailors do it. Chapter four, we don't see the salvation. It's left alone. But he figures it out as the implied ending to this story. When God asks this question, don't I have the right? The implied answer is that Jonah says, yes, you do have that right. And the way he answers that question is through his actions. He writes this book and he puts it down in writing. So uh, Jonah gets schooled. Uh, he is then well-trained by the king and by the whale. <laughs> and um, and we get this idea that, like Jonah, uh, starts to understand that 120,000 people are very important and much livestock. The barbecue is important too, Jonah. Don't you realize how much you're missing? Don't you get it? Uh, I don't want to destroy that much future barbecue. Like, if I just f- burnt the earth, then think of what I'm taking away from humanity, Jonah, like that's a lot of livestock. And and God works to build that brisket for people. And I, I do praise God through eating. You guys laugh at me, but like, I'm serious. Like, how do you not eat the bacon this morning and say, praise the Lord? Like, I just love that idea. So they're so lost that they can't tell the difference between themselves and the cows is another way to 120,000 people and livestock. And they don't even know the difference because they can't tell their right hand for the left. God loves his whole creation. God also loves the cows. And he loves the puppies. And he loves the dragonflies. And he made it all. And he loves them all. Um, So God loves his creation. God isn't willing to just randomly destroy things, humans, animals, cities. It's particular. This is an important aspect of God that applies to the book of Joshua too when we're reading them conquering the, the Holy Land, God is very intentional. He doesn't just randomly destroy cities. He doesn't just randomly burn a city to the ground. There has to be something there that's part of God's plan where that's essential for that to happen. Because he doesn't do it with Nineveh, but he does do it with cities in the promised land that he needs to get rid of that idol worship. So God's very humble and merciful. And and, and, and there are so major themes in this book, just to kind of summarize the book, major themes here. Uh, one theme is, The doctrine of free will. Humans are free to disobey. Another doctrine is the doctrine of resurrection. God can resurrect a human being or keep them alive inside of a whale, whichever way you go on that. The doctrine of reciprocal forgiveness. That forgiveness, God can forgive anyone, but waits for a repentant heart in order to administer or unleash that forgiveness. It's reciprocal. The doctrine that God is graceful to work with failures really doesn't matter what kind of failure you are. You can be as bad as Jonah and God will work with you. He'll even work with you despite your failures. Um, God is loving and he's not wrathful. Major doctrine. So when people say the Old Testament's just a wrathful God, that is an absolute lie. And I have some guesses where that lie comes from, but it's a total and complete lie because if you didn't catch it, Jonah is in the Old Testament. This is not a wrathful God, this is a loving and merciful God. He desires mercy, mercy, not wrath, and that's the book of Jonah. Four chapters of epic theological concepts that help us know the character of God and our relationship to him. So one question for me is, and I want to connect some things here back to the New Testament, do I miss the love of God and am I blind to it in my own life? Do I miss opportunities to serve my God? So this is Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be people that say they're Christians that don't get into heaven. This is a horribly terrifying passage for me because I do call myself a Christian. Am I getting into heaven? And I don't want you to doubt your salvation, but absorb this for just a second and then we'll, we'll pull you back from this thought. Not everyone shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We just read about a prophet prophesying in his name. Cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. Chapter four is the chapter where we get to see an interaction between Jonah and God. And Jonah's like not in the right side of that interaction, but at least he's interacting with God at least he's giving his anger to God. And that seems to be the resolution of the book. A conversation between man and God, even a negative one, is better than not having one. I don't want to be one of those people who gets to heaven and say, I never knew you, or I never had a conversation with you. I never stopped for five minutes in the morning to just talk with you. And God embraces that relationship more than he worries about what we do. Jonah is used by God. Jonah is told what to do and he misses all of it. And God has to keep banging on his head. Another question, do I have pity for the lost? Do I have a heart that breaks for the people that are dying because they're going their own way over the way God's told them to go? I don't know if I have that. Am I willing to go burn some idols and, 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 and and take down some strongholds for the kingdom. Woe unto you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all matter of herbs, and you pass by justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You're doing the things that don't matter, and you're not doing the things that do matter. Man, I, I can look at every day of my life and ask that question. Am I doing what God wants me to do today, or am I just doing stuff that I think is holy? Are you going through the motions of God's will, but missing chapter four, and you're not doing the heart of God's will? You're not doing business with God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, and inside they're full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. And the inside, you're just all about you, and nothing's changed in here. And nothing will change in there unless you go to God and say, God, change what's in here because I've tried and I can't do it. I've tried my whole life and I can't fix it. You got to come in and change it. You have to take away the temptation because I can't take it. I can't get rid of it. And you have to start doing that. And when you do, you start to see God's mercy, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Just give without hoping for feedback and reward will be great. And your son's and you will be sons of the most high for he's kind to be unthankful and he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. Luke 6:35. So there I'm pulling you back from those questions, right? Do the loving things and God promises you a great reward. Okay, well, what's the great reward? I don't know. It's like the treat at the bottom of the cereal box. You got to eat the cereal to figure out what the great reward is. But I know when I've seen other believers that go through their days and they've they they have gotten the great reward and part of that great reward honestly for me is the friendship that we have with you simply because we were like let's take our family bible study and open the doors what a blessing what how great that is it makes going through my week awesome right so that fellowship that 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 greatness of the lord is is mighty and he is merciful to forgive salvation is the lord's jonah 2 9 uh for those god plans to use he allows he prepares he designs and prepares training for the people he loves. God actually loves Jonah. It's more than we can even set up or or, or organize. When we give ourselves to the Lord, he's already prepared experiences for you to see his blessing because he wants you to see it. Do we trust in our works or do we trust in God's love? There's been a balance in the book of Jonah between works and love and action and heart and what does, you know, Jonah does things without the heart of God and then he doesn't do things and he's, he's trying to represent God and you've got this huge mixy thing here. So I, I want to let God finish the story a lot like Jonah did. I'm just going to read a larger segment of 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to turn there with me, I think God answers this question. He speaks through his word and he tells us the answer in case we don't figure it out on our own. Jonah does works without love, and it's a tragedy. We have to be reminded of this because we too can do things without love, and that's actually a tragedy. It's a bad thing. We can do next to nothing with love, and God says, Oh, you're at the right place. So it's not about what we do, it's never about what we do. So listen to what it says 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to start right at the top of the chapter. Yet I show you, I, as Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians. I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy like Jonah and understand all mysteries and all knowledge like Grant, and though I have all faith like Steph that I could move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and it's kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. Love is not puffed up Like an air balloon that can get popped with a pin. Love doesn't behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked like Jonah. It thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. It separates the sin from the person. Rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things endures all things there's a mighty strength here love never fails but whether there are prophecies they'll fail whether there's tongues they'll stop whether there's knowledge it'll vanish away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away when i was a child i spoke like a child Jonah, the sailors, the Ninevites. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see a mirror dimly and then face to face, panim. We're gonna see it. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I'm known and now abide in faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I heard one pastor say the reason that love's the greatest is because when we get to heaven, we don't need faith and we don't need hope. They've both been satisfied. The only thing that remains is love and of course, lots of livestock, right? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we love you and we know that you desire our heart and our love more than anything. We thank you for Jonah. You know, pass him the message. Uh, We appreciate that he did humble his heart to write a story that does not celebrate his greatness, but shows us the truth of humanity in a very honest, open, upfront way. Lord, we don't delight in iniquity, but we need to learn as humans, Lord, how to delight in you. May our hearts be filled with your love and your grace. May we pity those who you pity. May we follow your word despite our feelings. May we move beyond our fear and put our trust in you. May we move beyond our hate and put our love in you. Lord, may we see the world divided by those who follow you and those who don't. And may we reject the lens of any human made division of people. Just throw it out the window. Lord, we love you. Lord, may we have unity of spirit. May you bless us. To hold each other accountable. Lord, may we call each other to account over our lives, our actions, our behaviors, so that we can be a people of God that love and celebrate you. Lord, we pray your blessing on tonight's Bible study. Lord, as long as we're all here, we all lift it up, protect it, put a hedge around it. Guard that Bible study, Lord, so that we can continue to have time each week to love and bless you. Lord, I thank you so much for the people in this group that humbly and generously give, food, watching the door, managing the cleanup, talking to our, the, the, the anchor owners, uh, planning events outside the Bible study. Lord, what a blessing this place has been. We thank you for the heart of Caleb and Janiel to even ask their friend about this place. Lord, I just pray that that continues, that people give out of the goodness of their hearts. And Lord, for as long as possible, We keep that purity amongst our body and our fellowship. Lord, we thank you for the Bible, the holy word of God that, Lord, you've just told us everything in one book. We thank you for such a mighty gift, an eternal gift that we have access to. We thank you that you put it in terms we can understand. Lord, we love the imagery of the sailors and the boat and the fish. Uh, We love the idea of being able to see how this works so that our hearts can be changed. Lord, help us to remember the words of your Holy Scriptures in times of trial, in times of need, and as we talk about things with unbelievers. May we just say what you tell us to say, just like Jonah did, uh, so that hearts can change. Lord, we continue to lift up our family and our friends and those people you've put in our life, that we can have a boldness to share our love and our grace and our joy with other people. Um, And Lord, may they come to know you and build a holy relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we want you to come soon. We're kind of sick of this world. Uh, So Lord, we're okay if you return tomorrow, that's good. Um, And Lord, if there's anything we can do to be your servants on this earth as you delay your return, uh, make that really clear. May your voice just be uh, loud and cleared through your word, through the Holy Spirit in our lives. um, And even Lord, voices from you yourself when you need to turn a stubborn heart. Um, Lord, we just want to hear you and do your work.